You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and you have the chance now, if it is still before the 3rd of July 2017, to take part in the discounted merch pre-sales. That's right, you can get the new ComCom t-shirt, brand new, a white design on black, the fabulous uh, horse sheriff's badge device uh, by the official ComCom pod artist, Polly Becker. Do check them out at comedianscomedian.com forward slash merch. And if it is before the 3rd of July, you can get a discount on those. So snap them up now. This is an episode recorded live at the O2 Arena, would you believe? As part of the Stone Free Festival, this is the excellent and lovely Ed Gamble. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show, with all of the applause that the O2 Arena can muster, it's Mr. Ed Gamble. Hello. That was not bad. That was not bad. They brought their A-game. Yeah. Well done, guys. Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you I for having me. I thought you would be the ideal booking for this, because you're a, a badass Slayer fan with tattoos. I am. This is not really a sort of Slayer sort of festival, though. This is more dad rock, <laughs> is how I'd put it. More Marks and Spencer's jeans than you'd see at a Slayer gig. That is definitely true. I mean, there was a lot of parents in that queue coming yeah. in. I mean, I, I, this is going to sound terrible. I can't name anything by Rainbow. Since you've been gone, mate. Oh, was that it? Yeah, Okay, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah but can yeah. you name anything else? No. Okay, fine. I mean, right. they do have to call it Richie Blackmore's Rainbow, just in case people think it might be Zippy and Bungle turning up. <laughs> Zing. <laughs> um, and you told me earlier on, this is the second time you've been in this venue this week. Second time I've been at the... Uh, at the Ind- I was in the Indigo on Monday, emceeing the Metal Hammer magazine Golden God Awards. That sounds like the best corporate gig in the world. Well, I mean, it was not paid like a corporate gig. Okay. Uh, I did it because the guy who normally does it um, just wanted to get pissed and watch. Uh, But it was probably the most exciting night of my life. Go on. Uh, I was introducing two of my favorite bands of all time onto the stage. Clutch and Mastodon. Clutch? Yeah. I don't know much about Mastodon, but I'm a new convert to Clutch. Yeah, they're amazing, and I got to introduce them onto the stage. Oh, man. And did you meet them and hang out with them and touch their butts? I, refu- <laughs> I refused to meet them. Really? Not actively. I didn't actively refuse. Like, someone said, <laughs> you Clutch, really want to meet you, man? <laughs> no way. Um, no, I just didn't want to, I just didn't want to meet them, because what, what's going to come out of that? I was yes, going, I really love you guys. 
Uh, I am uh, good friends with Sophie Aldred, who used to play Ace on Doctor Who, which I think will be before your time, but there will be a certain slice... The, the audience member over there. The audience, the member, audience member. That's blown yeah. the gap. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the gentleman in the front row there, uh, the gentleman who is 50% of the front row, is nodding excitedly. Yeah, Sophie Aldred. So she used to play the official hottest ever Doctor Who companion. Right. right? When I was a kid, she was... Hot stuff. And, and you're no friends one, with her now. And now I'm mates with her because I, I know her husband really well. He's a yeah. strict performer. So take a drink now. So uh, I was at, uh, I can't remember what function it was, but a friend of mine called Dave was at this thing with us. And I said, do you want to meet Sophie? And he went, yeah, no. And he, <laughs> he properly freaked out. So you had a similar thing with Clutch. You thought you would be... Uh, yeah, because the only... The only scenario that exists in my head is I meet Clutch and then they ask me to be in the band. Yes. And I know that's not going to happen. So I was happy to stand backstage with them and watch other bands and be next to the drummer while he was sat on his practice kit practicing. That was very exciting for me. That's nice. That's all I, that's all I needed. And I got to meet Chris Jericho, the wrestler, and I got to meet Chuck D from Public Enemy. So this, this is incredible. Now, this, is, well, this leads nicely into what I've now decided is going to be my first question. Do you feel within comedy that you are that you have everything you want i think from the outside you seem to be one of those people who has a kind of um i don't i don't quite mean like a charmed life i'm not suggesting Mm. that there hasn't been a lot of hard work and stuff and uh, a lot of exciting weight loss which we'll discuss (laughs) later but um but i i think you are one of those people who gets to live the role of a comedian and you just get all your dreams come true you get to meet exciting people that was exciting travel all over the world you know, do you, do you feel like comedy is giving you everything you want? I, uh, no, I do not feel like that at all. I don't, think, I don't think anyone feels that they lead a charmed life. I'm, I'm willing to admit that I have, I've been pretty lucky and I've had, a lot of, I've had a lot of other people help me and sort of take me under their wing throughout, throughout my career, which has been very nice. But I don't, I'm certainly not, like, completely satisfied. I don't, think, I don't think anyone is. I think you just stop working if you're satisfied, don't you? What's the thing that you don't currently have that most rankles that you don't have it? Another 20 minutes for my Edinburgh show? <laughs> well, go on, let's take that as absolute standard. <laughs> Speaking as, and it's not often that I have people on the podcast who, you know, we have sat together in, I nearly named one of our secret lo- writing locations. <laughs> but we've sat together in a few places yeah. um, and hammered out ideas and, yes. tried, you know, kind of explored angles and stuff like that. We'll get onto the, the, the technical writing stuff yeah. in a bit. But... Um, Everyone needs 20 minutes for their Edinburgh show. Yes. As Alan Cochran always says, always, the, the sentence, uh, what does he say? The sentence, uh, I need three more good bits, yeah. is always true exactly. and will be for the rest of your life. I mean, that makes me feel that Edinburgh show should be 40 minutes long. They 100% should be. This is a movement I'm going to start on the podcast. Yeah. They're 45, and then you've got a 15-minute changeover, and it's the next one. Everyone yeah. starts on the hour. It's easy, and you just get the good stuff. You'd get as good a show. Mm. You just get less flanneling and... I mean, the band have stopped warming up, but now someone is uh, kicking an ice machine to death. It's good atmosphere. (laughs) (laughs) So, given that you definitely need 20 more minutes, what else else do you want that you don't have? What sorts of things are we talking about? I think I'm I'm definitely on the path that I would like to be. I just want more of it, Stu. (laughs) Just want... You know, more people to come and see me, bigger, bigger audiences, you know, bigger tour venues, all of that sort of stuff. I think I just want to keep, keep going in this, in this direction. And I don't necessarily feel like I've completely found all of the stuff that I want to talk about yet. Okay. I'm not, I'm not digging into, into anything important yet. Do you mean important as in important in the world, socially, politically, or do you mean important as in important stuff in your life? Important stuff in my life. I, don't, I think I've sort of let go of 
of any notion that I could be a socially or politically important comedian. It's just not. That's just, I, I've spent a while going like, well, maybe I should start trying to think about something like that. And then you, I think eventually you just come to the conclusion that it's just not me. That is an interesting feeling. I remember leaving my actor's agent. I was a fraudulent actor for a few years before I became a comic. <laughs> and when I eventually left the acting agent that I had struggled so hard for years to sign with, yeah. I walked out of that door thinking, I'm a comedian now. Yeah. And, oh, God. It must be a similar feeling of like, I'm just not political. Yeah. Woo-hey! It's just, I, I think... I don't know what it is. I think it's if you do Edinburgh a lot, there's certainly a trend at the moment for the for the critically lauded stuff to be the, the shows that are saying something socially or politically, which is great, and they're amazing shows. But you can't you can't try and bend your what you're doing towards that. It's like it's like music. Like I wouldn't wouldn't necessarily come and see Rainbow, but they're very good. They're very good at what they do. I think. <laughs> Are you saying that as if someone from Rainbow has walked into okay, the Is Richie room? Blackmore in? Yeah, I, I love your stuff, man. <laughs> so for people who don't know you, what kind of subjects do you talk about? I talk about myself a lot. Like it's, and it's... I, quite, a lot of people have accused me of being self-deprecating, but I don't think of it like that. I just think of absolutely telling the truth about myself. I talk about yeah. myself and my home life and... Uh, like weight loss, you said that was a big thing for a couple of years that I talked about. It's it's mainly about myself. Okay, to, to, just for people who don't know you, explain the uh, the weight loss thing. I lost six six stone in about a year, and this is not a twenty stone man saying that. This is not like no. a, that was a small. That was like half your body weight. I wasn't. I was nineteen stone, and I lost six stone. That took up a large part of my first show, second show, and partially my third show. Do you feel you... Because you, I, saw, I saw some of those shows, and I, you've got some brilliant stuff about it. That thing about the belt buckle. Yeah, that was first show. You've got it. Was that your first show? That was first show, So yeah. you had a routine about your... Uh, you had an eagle belt buckle, which yeah. you bought because you suddenly could buy cool clothes because yeah. now you'd lost all this weight, and you felt you believed yourself more. And it made two little points when you bent over, so it looked like your nether regions were in inverted commas. Yes. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm going from memory here. I believe also you said that because you dressed slightly to the left, it looked like your dick was in italics. In italics, yeah, that's it. You've remembered more than me. I'd yeah, it's about that's that. very good. I might bring that bit back. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get on. We'll get on to one of the things I want to talk about is your ability. I think you've got a really strong ability to continue mining stuff. You know, in that way that Matt Kirshen is really good at, and a tag and another tag. Yeah, and another yeah, tag. yeah. I think that's a speciality of yours. But your you talk about your you talked about the the weight loss do you and you you kind of said there well in my first show my second show it's on my third show do you feel you overdid that did, did you fit if i was you i would have thought hey this is an angle yeah. i've got a thing to say yeah. because actually i'm a nice middle class white boy yeah i think i only realized that after the second show okay which was very frustrating because i kept coming up with new bits about losing weight and then eventually looked at it all and went, that would have been a really good 55-minute show. Yes. But unfortunately, it was spread out across, across three shows. And I think certain, when I was doing my first show, I was not confident enough to make it all about one thing. I think I just wanted to do that thing of just collecting everything that I'd written so far. Because I'd, I'd been doing comedy for seven years before I did my first show. So I had all this stuff, and I was like, well, just ram it into the hour and just hope it all fits together. Whereas now, I think I'm, I, only now am I approaching a level of confidence as a comic where I could just go like, people will come and watch me talk about one thing for 50 minutes. 
it's weird. I find myself giving, I try not to give advice, but I am asked very frequently mm. <laughs> because the idea of having a podcast apparently means that I'm good. And uh, in the eyes of nice people that listen to the podcast. But the advice, I'm trying to be self-deprecating about the fact I do give people advice. I hate the idea of giving people advice. And often the advice that I give people is don't listen to anyone's advice. Right. But the one other thing I will often say to newer acts is if they're stressing about their competition set, there's no such thing as competitions. There's no such thing as the industry. But if they're stressing about their set, the thing I try to say is do seven minutes about one subject. Yeah. Because that does display, what, maturity or experience? Or like, I, I certainly, when I did my competition sets, I got the five funniest bits I had and rammed them all together yeah. and tried to take all the gaps out and all the pauses and all everything. But there is something to be said for going, nope. I'm talking about this, and I think people really respect that. It shows. I think it shows. I think it shows confidence and like brass balls to, that early on in a career to be like, I'm going to mine one subject for seven minutes, and some of it might not be funny, but we're getting somewhere with it. And what was the re- what was the reception to your first show? Fine, like absolutely <laughs> fine. That's a, but with Edinburgh, like critically, that is that's my bag. Absolutely fine. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like certainly my first show, which I know maybe that's unfair. Certainly my first show, I've been going for seven years. Everyone had seen me. They'd seen most of the bits. They knew what I did. And then I just did that. So I wasn't like showing up going like, we've seen, you've seen that. Come and watch, come and watch me. I've I've been to Goliath. I'm going to do my clown show. It was just, I was just doing what I'd been doing, Um, which I think worked to get a new audience in. And to sort of progress my career. But critically, no one's going like, oh my God, have you seen what Gamble's doing this year? It's what we've seen him do already. Okay. Yeah. Do you regret that? Do you feel like you could have made more of an impact by pushing yourself I think, harder? Yeah. But I mean, yeah, certainly. But I think we can all say that. Um, uh, I think, but I, I, was very, I was very happy with all the stuff in it. And it's meant that I am where I am now because it was just like, I've just kept writing stand-up. This, so talk about where you are now. How do you, how do you feel about where you are now? Because I've got my preconceptions about where you are now. Yeah. I feel like you're in the ascendancy. You've been on Mot the Week a good few times now. Yeah. You're kind of lifting. Like, if you look at your tour schedule, they're de- you know, it's a decent length yeah. tour. They're decent-sized rooms. It's like, oh, Gamble's well, achieving escape velocity. You say, you say that, but they just let you book those rooms. <laughs> it doesn't mean that anyone's going to come. You can just book them and put them on a poster. Um, no, it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Feel like you, you've disavowed the idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, on. it does. It You're does, doing fine in those rooms. Yes, doing fine in those rooms. It does feel like things are going in the right direction. It's taken quite a long time, sort of chipping away at it, but it certainly feels like doing things like mock the week, and then you know that hopefully leading to other stuff and selling tickets, and people seem more interested. It feels, it feels like it's going in the right direction. Uh, what the listener at home might not hear is that the someone has just started playing a guitar solo in the background, and it, it was just such a perfect filmic moment of like, yeah. <laughs> it feels like it's going in the right direction. <laughs> Great. So it's clearly going in the right direction. Do you know what I mean by escape velocity? That kind of like, we're all on the circuit, we're all chipping away. Yeah. And then you go, hang on a minute, they're doing quite well, because then as soon as you become a TV face, yeah. you start getting booked for other TV things. Well, yeah, you'd hope so, yeah. Do you feel that happening? Yeah, I think I'm certainly I'm certainly busier, but I will also also do anything. <laughs> <laughs> what sort of things? Oh, just what I mean, what, whatever you throw at me. I don't care what channel it's for. I don't care what I have to do. I'll just do it. 
it's all about it's these days it's all about just getting your face out there even if it is covered in custard on ITV2. Well, the first thing in which I remember you getting your... We'll, we'll talk about the double act for a, yes. in, a, in, a, in a minute as well. But the first thing where I thought, oh, hang on, Gamble's going off, was almost royal. Yeah. So you did a... Could just tell us what that show was. Because I watched a little bit of it again in researching yeah. for this interview. And it's very, very funny. Oh, it's, thank you, man. It's much funnier than I expected it to be, given that it's kind of Sunday morning hangover fare. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's quite... It was quite gentle. I'll explain what it was. Um, it was a BBC American show, so it was an American commissioned show, but co-produced with a British production company called Burning Bright. And it was me and Amy Hoggart pretending to be 50th and 51st in line to the throne and filming a documentary across the States, meeting real people and sort of acting like we were, you know, trying to find out more about America as British royalty. Um, so it was sort of a... It was a Borat-type thing but what we always wanted was for it to be more gentle than borat it was always it was always us looking like idiots yes and people going god these it's not about trying to highlight people's prejudices or ignorance or whatever it it was actually just an opportunity for you to push yeah improvising exactly yeah Uh, very early on i remember doing the pilot thinking oh, we can really highlight some social stuff here. And talking to a man, we were in te- like the middle of Tennessee somewhere, and he was driving us out into a lake to catch catfish with our hands. I remember saying things to him, like trying to catch him in traps to say something <laughs> racist, and he just wasn't. He just wasn't racist. I was like, I'll probably just leave that then. It feels cruel. Is it fair to say you would not have got that role without the radical weight loss? No, I definitely wouldn't have got it, no. Because you turned out as a young fat man. Yeah. Did you even know you had the incredible bone structure that you have? <laughs> well, that's very, that's very nice of you, Stu. Uh, I didn't realise I would look as royal as I did un- <laughs> underneath. Did. And I look a lot royal. younger un- underneath all the fat than I was expecting. I think there's some sort of preservation thing. It's just it's like the, the amber in Jurassic Park has just preserved m- my age. So when you were... Did you... If I try and imagine myself what it must be like to, to do those kind of, like, improvising, having to be funny, under a certain amount of pressure, having to not tip the wink, having to be outrageous and stupid such that it would be funny, but not so much so that your guest goes, well, this is clearly bullshit. Yeah. Talk to us about that kind of tightrope. Was it, was it, did it make you tense? Was it worrying? Or was it something you just took to naturally? Certainly. I mean, we, had, we filmed so much for it. Like, there's, we probably filmed three times more than was actually ever on the screen. Uh, so the, f- the initial ones where you go into it, it's, it's quite tense and can be a bit stilted and you don't know when to get in a stupid line. And eventually you learn that sometimes you can be in there for three hours and the first two hours, 50 minutes, just you need to be quite normal. So they're, so they're completely bought into you. And then the last 10 minutes is an absolute ridiculous <laughs> storm of stupid lines. Do you have... Uh... Do you have anything that you regard as kind of like your, the bit you enjoyed most, the stupidity that you enjoyed most? Oh, there's so, there's so much. There's, there's something in the second season where we went to like a space center and did, uh, and did like a um, simulation of a landing a space station. So there's loads of people from the space center in there teaching us how to do it. And then like something went wrong and we had to solve a, a puzzle to get it all back online again. And the stuff we were coming out with, at one point Amy got her high heel stuck in the thing, so we couldn't get the oxygen back online, and one of them was pretending that he couldn't breathe. And obviously it's normally like kids doing this, and they do it so quickly that he doesn't need to pretend that he's dying. But they're going, he's dying, he's dying! She's going, I can't get my shoe out of the mat. And I said something, referred to an anus as a back nostril. I was very proud of that. 
Were there times as well when it went wrong? Uh, we got uh, called on it twice. Only twice in, in, two our, seasons. in two seasons. I think quite often probably what happened was the people we were meeting clocked that something was going on uh, that was not how it was originally presented and either uh, they, uh, they were a bit afraid if they called us out on it and it wasn't a setup, then they'd look embarrassed in front of loads of cameras or they just played along with it because they thought it was funny. Because like okay. I say, we weren't making fools out of them. It was just us saying stupid stuff. So, so if I was on their side, I'd, I'd just be like, well, this is clearly fake, but it's very funny. Let's, let's keep going with yes, it. Yes, okay. So we were called on it twice, once by a shaman in the Hollywood Hills, uh, but we went too far. That was an example of us going too far too soon. What did you do? Well, I, we'd watch videos of him and his, uh, his method. There's a video of him online. He's also Gwyneth Paltrow shaman. He was in the <laughs> Evening Standard recently. His name's Shaman. Oh, yeah, I know that guy. Shaman Durek. Uh, he's an absolute shyster. Um, he, uh, it, online, there's a video of him like, getting people to close their eyes and do this breathing, and, and he goes, I'm going to pull the poison out of you. I'm going to pull the poison out of you. Uh, so I thought it would be funny. I didn't ask production. I thought it would be funny if I drank two liters of Pepsi Max before, and then when he said, I'm going to pull the poison out of you, I just did a really big fart. <laughs> Which is too far. It's too far because that was in the first 10 minutes because it just, I'd drunk the Pepsi Max. I'd mistimed my Pepsi Max drinking. Um, <laughs> and I let it rip and he went, okay, this is a joke. Immediately after the fart because Amy burst out laughing. Oh, uh, wow. I mean, that is quite telling, isn't it? That the one person or one of the two people who spotted you are people who themselves trick people. Exactly. Exactly. And the other, the other person who spotted us in season two, we interviewed some celebrities and it was Lisa Vanderpump, who, uh, who has a reality show called Vanderpump Rules. And she's British, and she, spot, she spotted it. Yeah, Because uh, okay. she said something about having a TV, and we said, oh, no, we don't, we don't have a TV. I just like to look out the window at all the lovely grass or something like that. And she, she went, okay, this is a joke. No British person doesn't have a TV. Yeah. Busted. And then she said she knew Earl Spencer, and she was going to call him to check. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah. That's nice. So did you... The impression I got at the time was when I saw that, that show on TV, I was like, oh, hang on a minute. And America, that's now, I know you've done Conan. We'll yeah. maybe come back to that. But there is, um, I thought to myself, that's probably the sort of experience that as a comedian would make you go, hang on a minute, I am real. Like it would put to bed any kind of, like the self-doubting yeah. voices. You go, I've just been funny on TV for two seasons. I'm getting laughs in the room i'm getting laughs from amy it's yeah. all working was that kind of a, an environment whereby and i was just about to refer to the music <laughs> was that an environment whereby you came out of that experience i mean did did that quell any any dissenting voices in your head about your own sense of legitimacy as a comic i don't i mean i think it does for a bit i don't know how you feel about these sorts of things but every certainly the way i feel is every achievement i have for about a day i'll be like hang on this is going all right i've managed to do that i might be all right and then that becomes normal and then you're like right what's what's next because this isn't good enough anymore i just i just like i i will only dwell on feeling good about an achievement for max 48 hours so this is Ed. Great fun talking to him. Uh, we'll get straight back to the interview in just a second. Uh, I've got a listener email here from Stephen in the US. He says, I really appreciate your approach to interviewing, but as someone who lives on the West Coast of America, there's very little chance I'll be coming to any shows in the UK. 
it kind of twists the dagger when you say something like buy a ticket come to the show it's just a little cruel for those of us listeners living outside the uk thanks for the great podcasts well he says anyway thanks for the great podcast uh, i abbreviated that and it was not successful Stephen, thank you very much i love the way you're changing the phrase twist the knife to twist the dagger that's pretty arcane well done um yeah well you know if there's enough of you in america there's there's a few concom listeners in america there's a good few of you but uh really to be worth the whatever it is three and a half grand on the working visa we need to really big up that kind of groundswell of opinion so uh, thank you very much for listening and i hope if you are listening to this in america whether you are Stephen or someone else uh, if you could pop along to the iTunes page uh, if that's how you do your podcasts and just leave me a pleasant review because uh, the reviews as I've mentioned before on the show are specific to country so it really helps make the podcast more visible in your lands uh, if you give us a little review there thank you very much though uh, uh, I'm very pleased you're listening Stephen and um, someone called Chelsea donated uh, but I couldn't reply because her email keeps bouncing sorry Chelsea uh, I've tried to send that reply numerous times if you would like to subscribe support the podcast and hopefully receive an actual uh, personal reply from me then uh, you can do that at comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate you can do it with a recurring monthly payment via paypal or moon clerk what's one of them who knows you'll have to find out uh, or you can do a one-off payment as well or just see me in person and press some cash into my hand i'm going to be at glastonbury so if you're around uh, the glastonbury festival you can come along and see me i'm hosting the cabaret tent which is basically the comedy tent same thing um and uh, i'm also doing a set there so hosting on the friday afternoon doing a set i believe on the saturday but check those lovely big boards uh, and if it's raining i shall be hiding inside a double decker bus hurrah um so apologies to chelsea but if you would like to donate you could do that you know how to do it if you want to go to comedianscomedian.com forward slash merch you can support the show in a way that means you get a thing so do even if you're not going to buy one just check out the design i'm so excited about them polly's done a, a brilliant job there and uh, the pre-sales are now on until the third of july so you can get a bit of a discount if you order up quick not long to go till Edinburgh. My guest, the brilliant Ed Gamble, is going to be there. He will be there with his new show, Mammoth. Uh, I forget the venue. Maybe we talked about it in this episode. But uh, I know that you can Google it up a treat. So do go along to see that if you can. And, of course, if you're at the Edinburgh Festival, come along and see my show, Like I Mean It. Proud winner of the 2017 Best New Show Award at Leicester Comedy Festival, about which I shall stop banging fairly soon. Uh, but the Hell Week previews were great. If you came along to them, I really enjoyed them. They're just, it's a really new sort of a thing for me this year. It's kind of even, it's sort of dafter and lighter. There's a bit about howling. Is that light? Yeah, maybe it is. Maybe it is. I think I, I think I do a light touch. <laughs> so thank you to everyone that came along to Hell Week. And thank you especially to Kate Webster, who is becoming not just a com completist, but also sort of a goldsmith completist as well. It's quite impressive. She's seen practically all. She's a, you must, Kate, you must have seen something like seven uh, uh, previews. I mean, it's, it's too many previews, but your feedback is always greatly appreciated. So uh, that is that. Edinburgh, of course, 3.45 in the liquid rooms. And I will chat to you more after the episode with a little post amble. So now back to Ed Gamble. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's interesting. I, I get glimmers of this from you, just sort of in our friendship as well as from your work on stage, whereby you are very outwardly happy and positive and confident and yeah. every so often you'll say something and i'll think are you a twisted up little crazy pretzel in your head i definitely am because i know you're like you're a, I'm, the term ocd is bandied around but you're yeah. like obsessively tidy i am but i've had to let that go since moving in with my girlfriend i've had okay. to actively relax so i don't not i think ocd is probably too strong a term for it so what is what is the the broader picture then of what's going on inside your head that's a very vague question, Stu. It's designed to me. <laughs> See, it's so tricksy. Um, I, 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 think that, I think that's an interesting thing. Like I, I'm, I am quite, I'm quite tidy. I get, quite, I get flustered. I was flustered on the way, on the way here because I thought I was going to be late. It's too warm, it's too sweaty. I was just gripping the side of the rail replacement bus. I was about to have a full meltdown. Um, but uh, people, seem to, people who don't know me very well think I... Uh, I'm very, very relaxed and very happy in my career. Whereas I am, you know, on the whole, pretty happy. But I, I am sort of, I have the odd day of lack of confidence and thinking I'm do- doing things wrong. Sure. I think that's normal. I hate anyone who's just like, yeah, I'm loving it, man. I'm so laid back. I'm just trying to get a sense of whether you have a normal, well-adjusted, occasional bad days or whether there is like a kind of screaming skull guy on the inside i don't probably not a screaming skull day i think it's probably quite normal down days where you suddenly go oh god am i doing this right <laughs> and what sorts of things is it for you that that triggers those those kind of feelings like with that sense of like because i get the impression well let, let's talk a little bit about how you started and what your background was because yeah. you went to a nice school yes and you went to durham yes where you were buddies with nish kumar i've got a listener question from nish coming Lovely. up later on as you can imagine <laughs> it's about butts um but uh, i was in a sketch group with nish kumar and tom neenan were you? I was. I didn't know about that. Yeah. This is pre-Gentleman of Leisure. This is pre-Gentleman of Leisure. This was the Durham Review. Okay. So I, I was in the Durham Review as soon as I arrived at Durham. I auditioned for them, got in. And then the year after that, Tom and Nish both auditioned and I, I let them in. Nice. Uh, and then the rest, the rest is history. And you, apparently uh, you did a romantic novelist character called Selsden Krupp. I did. Most successful thing I've ever done. Go the on. only time I reached a competition final, Chortle Student uh, Comedian of the Year competition. Uh, I was a romantic novelist character. Uh, it was sort of basically all my favourite bits from Garth Marenghi, Alan Partridge in The Office. <laughs> <laughs> all fused together into one character. Uh, but it was a lot of just like parodies of romantic fiction. Okay. Quite, quite funny. And, but you did that, were you already doing stand-up by the time you did that? Uh, I done so. I did sketch stuff. My first gig was just as myself, and that was a "So You Think You're Funny" heat in 2005. Then my, I got through to the semi-final. Uh, and Who knocked you out? 
Uh, oh, Kevin Bridges. Ah, there we go. Yeah, That's respectable, all right, isn't it? There we yeah. go. Um, I got through to the semi-final, and there was about, um, I think probably about six months, was there? Oh, no, maybe less than that. Maybe three months between the heat and the semi-final. And this shows how, how green I was. At no point did I think, maybe I should do another practice gig in between. I just thought, looks like the semi-final's my second gig. Wow. Yeah. Second, so that was your first ever gig? My first ever gig was the heat. Second ever gig was the semi-final. Incredible. And then my third gig was the Samsung student competition at Leeds Jonglers, where uh, we, it wasn't like a competition night. You just went on in the middle. Two acts went on in the middle of a normal junglers night and i never died harder than that that is absolutely the worst six minutes of my life i'm trying to imagine a fresh-faced young ed gamble Mm. in the middle at leeds junglers yeah in a student competition where that please welcome student yeah and they didn't know it was happening so they just brought me on and i did my i had a big pad and i did a bit about a conspiracy theory about um a daz washing powder being owned by the ku klux klan (laughs) Where did the... That was presumably not in your competition set. Uh, no, I don't think it was in the, the first two gigs. I was writing pretty fresh. For, I did brand new stuff in the semi-final of So You Think You're Funny. I just did... Because I thought you just had to sort of write a new set for every gig, really. Okay. So who were you going into that? Like, was that... I mean, let me just get the timeline right. Was it Durham Review and then that bit of stand-up? Yeah, so Durham Review in 2005, then the So You Think You're Funny stuff in 2005... And then continued doing sketch stuff. Started a stand-up night in Durham in 2006, where I gave Nish Kumar his first ever gig. You're a legend. And I had dinner with Nish and his parents yesterday, and they actively blamed me for Nish being a comedian. <laughs> That's only fair. Yeah. Uh, Nish, at my wedding last weekend, uh, made a point of meeting both of my parents and hanging out with them. Nice. And both of them have since told me what a lovely man he is. He's so nice. <laughs> <laughs> so you're... The beginnings of the comedian Ed Gamble when you were a kid, were you, uh, were you fat as a kid? Uh, yeah, always, always or more. Did you, I couldn't tell. Were you like university fat? Were you like, no, I'm no, off no. the chain, pizza time? I was, I was fat going into university, and okay. then I was off the chain. I didn't realize I was chained. And then I got to university, and I was like, it's pizza time now. Okay. So it was fat on fat. And were you a funny kid? Yeah, I'd say so. I was brilliant, mate. Rare, rare that people say that with I such think I confidence. Was. Cheeky. Okay. A cheeky kid. You're a good with mums guy. Yeah, I'm good with mums because I'm, I'm funny with mums, but not in a blue way. Sometimes blue, but I know when to drop a bit of blue in with the mums. Was comedy ever something that seemed to you like an impossible dream? Or did it seem like a perfectly reasonable option? Absolutely just stumbled into it. At no point did I think it would be of career option once i start thinking of things like well I sh- if i do this this and this then this will happen then i get too stressed out and i feel it's slightly too pressurized so it sort of worked out pretty well for me and i just started doing it because it was fun and then just kept doing it that's what it feels like so is that what you attribute the your your success to is resilience more so than a game plan or skill never ever had a game plan never just always just blundering through i still feel like that and but that's that works that totally works for me because otherwise i don't know i think i just get if i start thinking if this goes well then this will happen 
I, I overpressurize myself and I fall to pieces. I have to, saying this to someone the other day, actually, even when it comes down to individual gigs, I have to actively not care how it goes or whether the audience enjoy it to have a good gig. That is fascinating. Talk to me more about that. It's not a disrespect for the audience. I want them to have a nice time, but in my own head, I just have to be like, oh, so if it doesn't go well, who cares? Is that a similar thing to that kind of... I remember talking to Arnab, Arnab Chanda. Yeah. Brilliant comedian. Yeah. I'm not 100%. I think he's... Is he still doing production stuff? He was being so. a producer for a while, making films. Very talented man. Very. Um, but I remember him saying... He just seemed so bulletproof on stage 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, and I said, where do you get that kind of confidence from? And he said, it comes from bombing a lot. You know, there's that kind of like that American influence of just going, you'd go on stage, you die, you die, you die, and you just yeah. become completely death proof. Yeah. Because it doesn't matter to you. Is that what you're talking about? Or is that something different? No, I think, it's an, I think it's something different. I think if I start worrying how a gig's going to go and thinking in my head, this has to go well, then I just, I don't fall apart, but it's just too stilted. I need to be super loose and super not caring about the gig. Like I need to... I need to look like I've just sort of wandered on. Otherwise, I get too... Like, that's the same with the writing. If it's too structured and too, like, this joke, this joke, this joke, this joke, I'll just go and bark it at them. And there's no connection. There's no feeling that it's even a live performance. I'll just do it. It's too stilted. And yet, when you do stand up on TV, like on your, on your Conan set, mm-hmm. presumably that is a very rigorous, yeah. submitted kind of a script. So, yeah. talk to me about the difference in, like, how, how do you maintain that feeling of looseness? And particularly knowing that that's like, it, you have to have that to make it work yeah. in an environment where you absolutely can't be loose. How do you achieve that? Well, sometimes I don't achieve it. So I think that Conan clip's... Actually, Great answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think that Conan clip's all right. I very rarely watch myself back because I just find myself very annoying. So I, I wouldn't watch myself back. Uh, but I think I've seen the Conan clip and that's okay because I'm clearly so excited to be there and it's such a different environment. And the audience are the most up for it audience for anything in the entire world. Like they're whooped up to their... And they've just seen, you know, Antonio Banderas being interviewed. They're very excited. The warm-up guy does an amazing job. Um, so I'm just, I'm just elated to be there, which sort of relaxed me a little bit. Okay. But I think you could probably watch me on a couple of other TV things, early TV things, where I'm clearly a bit like, this has got to go well. And it's just not, it's just not loose enough. It's not fun enough. So one of the area, one of the, one of the loosest things I've ever seen you do, yeah. um, is uh, the double act, is yes. peacock and gamble. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about that. I watched. Uh, I remember you suggested watching your uh, um, uh, your Russell Howard's good, the good news, news clip, clip, yeah, which you described as not necessarily our finest hour. No, I don't. I don't think it was. I think our our finest hours were always just in little rooms in Edinburgh where everything got massively off track. So describe the double act for people who've not seen it. Well, the double act came from uh, a podcast that we did together. So originally... Before podcasting was cool. Before podcasting was cool. uh, Ian Boldsworth, then Ray Peacock, was doing... Decided to do a podcast. He'd invited some people to do it with him. One of the guys he was doing it with dropped out. And we'd met in 2005 when he came to Compare Durham Review Show. Uh, and he just said, do you want to come and do an episode? And it went pretty well. So he just asked me to be on it. And then eventually the other guy left. And then so we started doing the Peacock and Gamble podcast. So it always came from uh, a completely improvised conversation. We'd have some sections that we would do week to week, but it was always completely improvised. And then when we decided to do the double act, we would write it. But he is 
a liability for going off script. So the way that the dynamic ended up working was him always trying to come away from the script and me desperately trying to get everything back on track. That's interesting because I saw, I saw the show live as well and I remember that aspect to it and I didn't know how much of that was the kind of the contrivance of a double act and how much of it was real and yeah. how much of it had used to be that and was now the contrivance of a double yeah. act. Yeah, well, so yeah, I think there's, it's probably a mix because there was certainly, he would always come off script at least once and start doing something, but he would just be testing to see what worked and then if it really worked we'd do the same thing the next night, but eventually we'd just end up building shows from him misbehaving and me trying to get him back on track. And does that... There is an element to which you are perpetually telling him off, yes. complaining about what he does. Yeah. And he... I mean, he does some unbelievably childish... It's Like, ridiculous. even on the Russell Howard clip, there's just sort of a joke out of nowhere where he just starts trying to fist you. And you know I mean? Yeah, but... We, so that... I'm not sure if that was a joke that he'd ever done before you, that's the impression i got also, from your reaction on, on, on you really look like, as well what are you doing during this tv set that's how we kept it we kept that loose i mean also the russell howard set he comes on wearing my actual hat that i'd come to the studio in f- f- he'd never worn that hat before and we'd run on and i just had to take the hat off him i don't know what what he was thinking was going to happen suddenly we were going to come up with a routine about a hat but that sort of that sums up how it was like he he's a complete very i mean the funniest person i've ever worked with an absolute loose cannon and that seems to have quite a sort of an enjoyable amount of friction with you as this sort of definitely tense worried tidy freak definitely based in reality the the dynamic and also very funny because he is the older one how Um, much older than you is he i don't know how he's in his he's in his 40s now I guess. So probably he's like 12 or 13 years older than me. Because I remember thinking that that's quite unusual in double acts. I think of yeah. like, I don't know if you ever saw No Son of Mine. I didn't. Oh, they were fantastic. More on that later. Um, but uh, which is what I say when I can't remember the names yeah. of the people involved. <laughs> it was great. And I can't remember the names of the guys involved. It was so good. Um, but yeah, that idea of having a, when you say people took you under their wing. Yeah. So he was, he was the first definitely who sort of, I guess saw that I was funny or whatever and was doing this podcast and very kindly went do you want to come and do an episode and it, it worked out it worked out pretty well and like I'm with the same manager as he is now so certainly meeting him and doing stuff with him was the the first little boost and just an example of me blundering my way through again I just met someone we got on he went oh I've got this manager do you want to meet him I was like yeah fine whatever and do you imagine if that hadn't happened would you have pushed through and got that management anyway or some sort of management anyway are you a sort of an internally driven kind of a person because i don't know like you present yourself as this kind of bumbling through person yeah, yeah. sure you've had luck yeah. but you've also been very hard working and resilient yeah. and you're tense enough to make yourself yeah i've probably been a little bit unfair i'm not it's not all all blunder i'm sure that certainly with the management that we're both with we booked him for that gig and i looked at who they had on their stable at the time, I was like, "That'd be they, they'd yeah. be good to be represented by." So something something went on in my head, okay. And then I found myself going going towards them, but it wasn't like an active like, "Okay, I'm going to write down my plans for a career and put them on the wall with pins and string." It, so, in your relationship with Ian, mm-hmm. in your working relationship with him, was there an extent to which, given that he was much older and much more experienced yeah. as a comic, did you was it an equal partnership creatively? Uh, no, he he definitely did shapes it more than I did. I think 
And how did that feel at the time? Were you happy to be oh, kind of yeah. carried along with Absolutely it? fine with that. Because, like I say, very, very funny. I mean, we, I had a big hand in it as well, but he's, he's one of the most driven people I've met and, so, and super confident in. I've come up with this idea. Here's the end point of the idea. I am now going to do everything I can to make that idea happen as quickly as possible. So he's, he's like, he just gets something between his teeth and he just runs with it, which is quite useful for me. Because quite often what I'll do is I'll have an idea, have an idea what the end product in is, start working towards that idea, lose confidence halfway through, put it in a drawer, and then come back to it about three years later. That tends, that tends to be with w- what happens with me. So I'm just trying to think if there was another thing uh, in the, uh, the Peacock and Gamble section was about Naughty Keith. Naughty Keith was our ventriloquist puppet. A sort of horrifying bondage muppet. Yeah, it was made out of a made out of a bin bag and a popped football with bike light eyes, and it was it had a really red mouth. It was absolutely horrifying, and he just squat. His catchphrase was piss. <laughs> his catchphrase was just shouting, shouting the word the piss. Word piss. Um, we did that at comedy for kids once. Not the. I mean, I don't think he ever said piss. But we got a kid out of the audience to control Naughty Keith for himself, and the kid went mad and just started biting us. <laughs> it's no more than you deserve. Yeah, arguably. very true. So did you, what did you take from you in terms of your, well, A, what did your parents think? <laughs> I, 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 my, my dad never fully understood Peacock and Gamble as a thing, I think. And he, he came to see us in Edinburgh where... We, uh, we had the best show we ever had. And to this day, I've never had a better show as a solo performer in the double act. It was, it was ridiculous. You know those shows where you get about 20 minutes in and you're like, what is wrong with you people? Yeah. I don't even like it this much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, um, my dad just looked baffled. Like he came out and he was just like, oh. He's got no idea what it was. He's, I think he prefers me solo because at least he can sort of, you know, I tell a funny story. And he's like, yeah, that is a funny story. And it's not people running around with a bin bag on their hand shouting piss. Um, uh, but it's still, supportive, still very supportive. It's like, that's what you want to do? Absolutely. Uh, and the same, my mum, my mum, if she was baffled by anything, she would not show it. She, she feels very nervous coming to watch me do stand-up. Just the idea that I might do badly and she'll have to be there. And was also at similarly my dad was at my best ever show my mum was at my biggest death of all time in edinburgh in in 2014 let's talk about your Uh, worst death ever i mean it was it was my solo show my first solo show it was pure silence for 55 minutes what room were you in the pleasant's this i don't think i saw that one what was uh, you did because you're my albatross <laughs> Every time you see me in Edinburgh, it's been a bad show. That's not true. That's not true. Well, lawman, I saw a good lawman. That was uh, lawman was a good. I mean, that was a blessed year for the time and the room. So it was, it was pretty good all the way through, apart from apart from the one you came to, which was a little bit sticky. Okay, fine. So it was all right. So that fifty-five minutes of silence in the pleasant. Yeah. Let's talk about for someone for whom like charisma and joie de vivre are your kind of stock in trade you know you're fun you're upbeat if it isn't these working, are all wo- these are all words that make me bristle when i see them written down yeah, in of course like they do yeah, previews yeah. for gigs S- solid yeah <laughs> charming and cheeky yeah absolutely but yeah. you're but the nature i don't i'm not saying that's all you have to offer yeah. but that is clearly the nature that's of your yeah. relationship with an audience a bit like me you know i, yeah. I bristle in a similar kind of exactly. way but it is that's the that's the language 
through which you're speaking to them. Yeah. So when it's going badly, when you're having an absolute memorable for the rest of your life yeah. death, yeah. what can you do? What, do? what structures, what strategies do you have to kind of rekindle that relationship? I mean, talk to them. Uh, it, it, I'd sort of go through various stages where I think 10 minutes in, you're like, well, I'm just going to sell the shit out of all of this stuff. I'm really, really going to sell it because I know it's good stuff and eventually I'll get them on board. And most of the time, I think that works. But then if there's another 10 minutes and they're still not on board, you're like, right, well, I'm going to talk to bail out of it and start trying to talk to them. And that's when you're really panicking. That's when it's proper sweaty back time. And then it's happened to me a couple of times where about 40 minutes in, I've gone, I'm just going to shout at them for not enjoying it. And that normally works, annoyingly. Why do you think that works? Because they know it's not going well. So th- people need it referencing. <laughs> you can't just ignore it going badly. Like I've had a, I've, it's probably only happened two or three times in my career where I've ended up having a full meltdown and it's ended up being, it's ended up being quite funny. It happened in New Zealand, my first solo show in New Zealand. They were just smiling at me for the whole thing. And then the last 10 minutes was just me ber- berating them for, it, for being a terrible audience. And, and there it, is something about breaking through like that when you get genuinely visibly angry. Yeah. There's something about the reality of the situation. It's like, I wonder if that's what they wanted. Is that what they weren't getting before was a sort of reality from you? Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it's just maybe it's that thing of if it's too rehearsed or too shiny then people don't feel connected with it and then eventually you get angry at them and start screaming at them and go there he is yeah i wonder yeah. i wonder because I, I i can sometimes suffer from that i think if i break the contract with them if yeah. i'm because you know i don't want it to be this way as it sounds like you don't want it to be this way either i would much rather be one of those comics who can walk on hate them yeah. perform a small amount of material slowly over yeah. a long time it's easier to write yeah. and you could do it deadpan low energy great and they all love it oh yeah. that'd be great but as it is I have to make an effort and it's just the nature of what it is it's yeah. like that, that moment when you go okay this is actually who I am I'm, I'm kind of stuck with me I find if I then bristle, if I get visibly angry with something, if someone heckles me and I, it lands wrong, my response sounds bitchy. You, you can see the audience all do handbags, like, yeah, yeah. like that, because I've broken the contract with yeah. I just wonder if there's um, a way to prevent that ever happening again. You know, maybe what it is is I'm, I'm being too... I'm glad-handing too much. Yeah. I think, there's, I think I'm... I feel like I'm slightly coming out the other side of that now. In the, I, it's that thing I was saying earlier of I, I have to not care. So I think some of my stuff's a little bit harsher now and I'm a little bit a little bit higher status than I used to be. I think I can get away with more and say quite, you know, quite harsh things. And still, I've still got to do a cheeky smile after it, Stu. And are the harsh things that you're saying because you believe in the truth of those things or is it because you're learning that that gets the biggest laugh when a nice man says something nasty? No, I think it's just closer and closer to who I am as a person. Like, I don't... I am a, I'm a nice guy, I think. It's difficult to say that, but isn't it? So, yeah, it is. <laughs> but, um, but I've certainly got more of an edge than I ever used to present on stage. Like, first few years of doing comedy, I think you, when you just want it to go well, you're just like, oh, hi, guys, please. <laughs> please laugh at everything I'm saying. Whereas now, I think I'm much better if, if I go on and, th- and thinking, no, I know this is all funny, and if you guys want to get on board, you're perfectly welcome to. But if you don't, I'm going to shout at you until you do. So what are some of the things that you took, if you could think of one quality 
or one piece of learning that you took from the double act mm. with Ian that you then took with you into your own stand-up practice? What would that be? I mean, it's probably just his working practice of just having a bit more confidence in ideas when you think of them to actually, you know, put them into fruition. Because I think, I think if you have an idea, you've, you've then got to explore it rather than going, well, it's probably not good enough because I've, I've come up with it. I think that's sometimes, sometimes how I feel about stuff. And it's an active thing to push that down. I think, I think you just need to learn to go, well, I've come up with that idea and then any voices of self-doubt, for now, you may as well push them away and see where the idea goes. I think that's probably what I took from working with, working with him, certainly. And also, um, always take the label off a bottle of water when you take it on stage. He also, he had a lot of, he's got a lot of sort of quite old school pro things. He was like, never, like northern club comic things. And never, always take the label off a bottle of water. Just looks unprofessional to have uh, Evian on your bottle. It's weird, isn't it? Sponsorship. Very nice. <laughs> so let's talk a bit about Mock the Week. Mm-hmm. How many times have you done Mock now? Uh, 11 okay and that is a, that is a healthy number of appearances yeah the first, you... the first one went well I think well enough for them to to get me in for quite a few more yeah. and as someone who doesn't do political material mm. do you do topical material was it a stretch to get yourself into a mock the week writing mode uh, it is I'm in, a, I'm in the rhythm of it now so it's, good. it's, it's better now I feel across everything that's happening at the moment, but certainly in those in those fallow periods between series, I don't necessarily keep up with the news as much as I should do. So when it comes to doing the first episode back, I'm like, oh god, here we go, a bit of revised six months of news. Who is the prime minister? <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, the sort of show that Mock is, I don't. It, not everyone on there is a political or topical comic because there's so many angles to come at it from, and everyone has their own thing and the way of covering covering the events. I mean, I'm doing it with Acaster the last couple of weeks and zero zero politics just all stupid stories and just trying to take it down weird tracks and stuff like that so and how do you feel what do you feel your role is on any given panel if you're on that panel yeah if you're on the the cast of that episode how do you fit into the group dynamic of the show like what do you bring to it that's particularly you i'm certainly more more topical than someone like James, but probably not as topical as someone like Nish, who was also on it last week. Uh, I tend to keep it based in the topical stuff, but it'll be always be the silliest take on something or just the rudest, the rudest take. Um, Nish refers to my uh, comedy as blue whimsy. So there's certainly a whimsical element to it. It's not straight out filth, but a dick will always pop up at some point. And I feel like that's what I sort of do on, on Mock of the Week as well. The scenes we'd like to see are just an absolute playground for, for Blue Whimsy. Have your appearances always been within the kind of like the current phase of Mock of the Week, yeah. whereby it's the less stressed, less combative, less competitive? Yeah, so it, was, it. it definitely, my first episode was uh, Rob Beckett, Sarah Pascoe, Ramesh, uh, and, then, and then Hugh and Ed Byrne, I think. Um, so it was a very re- like friends, just like actual, yeah. I was going to say apart friends. from Ed and, and Hugh, that's actual mates that you'd go to the pub with, sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then Ed and Hugh are so friendly that, and so welcoming that it's fine. And then Dara lo- Dara loves the the new form of it as well. I think 
He just likes to see it evolve. And is that, does that ever, do you ever worry that that will trip you up? In that, like, in the old days of Mock the Week, you'd want to turn up with like a thousand jokes in your back pocket, like yeah. strapped for war. Yeah. Whereas now you're a bit more inclined to turn up and go, hey, friends. And then do you, is there no, any sense? No, I'm still, I, I still get that little panic where I go, like, if this goes badly, they could just, they could drop me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come armed to the back teeth but hoping that I don't have to use most of it because we'll just end up having a, a really fun chat. I mean, it is, it, being on with friends is difficult as well because you get too giddy. So last week, the producers came to me, Nish and James individually and told us we had to just calm down a bit. And if Dara told us he wanted to just to stop messing around, we should stop messing around. <laughs> because the three of you are just pricking you about. You get too excited. But quite often it's Dara leading that. He, he loves it. He gets so excited, but then eventually you'll, you'll just tip him over the edge and just see him just hold his hands up. You're like, we could better stop. Dad's angry. <laughs> <laughs> so do you still work? I don't know what the, the current system is for writing for Mock. I know in the past you kind of get assigned a writer. No, I, I, I do work with people on it. I tend to work with one person per episode, but you're not assigned. I just... Okay. So Tom Neenan, I work with him. He's okay. a brilliant writer. There's people I know who who are good at stuff and, and talk to me about that kind of writing with process because that, that's something that years ago that felt like no one would ever mention that you would yeah. write with someone because it seemed like cheating or you'd be worried that it's just there's so much grown up comics would catch you out you know? <laughs> there's so much stuff and it's it's just this crazy like day before where you just get all of these stories through and it's just useful to have someone to field your ideas with just to get them get them out loud really it's like when, we, like when we write together, it's that sort of vibe where you're just putting ideas across and even just saying them out loud to someone else, you can see by what direction their eyebrows uh, go in that you're like, oh, no, that's a terrible idea, you're right. Because I never say stuff out loud otherwise. Like even stand-up, the first time I say it out loud will be on stage and I'll get halfway through a joke and go, Why, who came up with this shit? Why did I ever think this would be Is funny? Is that true that you don't, you, don't, you don't take on stage something that you might have said conversationally? Sometimes conversationally, but quite often it's just something I've scribbled down in a book and then I'll, I'll say it out loud and go, I have absolutely no idea why I ever thought this would be funny. And do you have particular ways of attacking a subject to try and find the funny in it that you feel, do you notice yourself relying on a particular, I don't maybe relying is the wrong word, but when you attack a subject, mm. there, is there like a, a process that you will go through? Like, let's, let's, pick, let's pick something. Yeah. What have you got cooking at the moment for your Edinburgh show? I know you're going to want to say absolutely nothing. No, I know no, that's not there's, true. There's stuff. There's stuff. Um, so what, what at the moment is your most confident routine from the forthcoming show? I've got a story uh, about uh, a sports massage. Okay. Which is the thing that's working best at the moment. I, and I run, it's originated with a true story of something that happened to you. Yeah, it is. It is so it talk is to us about story. the development of that from it happening exactly like from from yeah. it happening to now and what you've done with it and how you've changed it well initially if like i just had the basis of the the story that i went for a sports massage and i farted during the sports massage that's so that's all i had and i i mean obviously that is just that's just funny it's just one layer of fun isn't it it's like because you know the farts are funny Stu. um so i just had to walk on stage and say that that had happened it got the initial initial uh, laugh of interest like it wasn't just deathly silent and people laughed and as if to say 
carry on please tell us more yeah um, right that's important listening yeah. to that instinct like the yeah, laugh yeah. which is effectively oh permission yeah. to explore yeah. further yeah. yeah and and then uh, i'll just start talking about that i'll just mainly come up with it on stage i probably have two or three jokes that i know i can go to that i've written but the rest of it is just talking on stage and, and seeing see what comes out, really. So you're doing that thing of going, right, I'm going to start with this subject. I know where it can go two minutes from now. Yeah. I'm going to challenge myself to fill the two minutes see and what see happens. if anything else comes out. Yeah. And, and is that the way you've always written? Yeah, I, 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 thought, I would have thought by now I'd be in a situation where I can sit down, come up with something from scratch and go, I know this is going to work because I know what I'm like and I know what I can talk about. But there's still a heavy element of being absolutely in the dark until I say it, say it on stage. It's weird, isn't it? I thought I could write a full solid routine now before I've performed it and then go on. But no, it's always go on. They give the, the laugh of, please continue. I'm like, oh, how exciting. I found a bit. Yeah, I, would, I feel the same. I feel yeah. like, I mean, I... Like, I've got a routine in my new show about escape rooms, which I know you're a huge fan of. I love it. And I've heard you've got a routine on escape rooms, and I'm so angry. Yes! Good. Because, <laughs> obviously, I've, I, I planned. I was like, right, well, I'll write that in my notebook. Escape rooms, I do those, so I'll do a routine on those. And I just didn't get to it quick enough. Yes! I, and I've got, do you know what? I've got one punchline about me and my brother going to an escape room and forgetting to pay and then going back. But do we go back? Because we had escaped. Yeah. Like, that, basically, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Just, that was enough to go... Oh, the Here we go. to laugh. Yeah, oh, yeah, right, yeah. I can yeah. get somewhere in it. And then often I find the middle, the jokes in the middle, one, now you know that there's a, an end in sight. Yeah. The jokes in the middle then get better than the end. That's, and then I end up in the position of going, well, you know from when we've written together, I'm yeah. like, the end is no longer good enough because yeah. the joke's in the middle of the good yeah. bit. Yeah. And then you've got to throw the end away. And you're like, no, it's got to end somewhere. That's my, my favourite bit of writing is when you know the idea's funny, you know what the end is, and adding, adding Definitely. stuff. Just Definitely. adding stuff. So great. But, and I, I think I am occasionally guilty of just adding far too much. Okay. I am awful at streamlining a routine. Like, I will just, I'll add, I'll hang so much on Well, stuff. this is it. You, I mentioned this, I referred to this earlier on. You're very, very good at tagging. You're very good at going, that's the basic idea, and then explore, 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 unpack more stuff. Now, yeah. that, to me, feels like a sit-down-and-write-it process. Or is it more of a pulling-it-apart-on-stage process? It's, it's more of adding little bits every single time. So if I can challenge myself to do a new, even like a, just one new sentence in a story at every gig, then I end up with a, size, a sizable chunk on And do you... Because I think one of, the, one of the questions about you as a comic, for me, is... <laughs> Not the questions of whether you deserve to be one. <laughs> one, one, one of, the, the, one of the, the curious things about you is that for all that you claim to bumble through and oh, it's luck and, you know, all the rest of it, yeah. you're clearly capable of the self-discipline required to change from a fat man to a very thin man. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there is something there. You have got some kind of iron in you. And I'm fascinated by self-discipline because I will, I'll think to myself, right, no more biscuits ever. Yeah. And in the next biscuit I see, I'll go, well, obviously I'm having that. Yeah. And it's just gone out the window, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. So talk to me about self-discipline as it pertains to your life and to your writing. I don't think I'm as self-disciplined with my writing as I have been with my health. Because I think quite often I'll use health stuff as an excuse for filling a day. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. So if yeah. I wake up in the morning and go for a run, I'll be like, well done, mate, you've absolutely smashed today. Netflix for the rest of the day? Thank you. 
little treat. Um, and I, I, I need to find that. Quite often I need structure. So having an entire year to write a show is, is a nightmare for me. Yeah. Because the first, the first like, four months are, are nothing. Because I can think, well, I've got loads more time after that. Whereas something like Mot the Week, I've got two days or whatever to get some stuff together. I've got a deadline. I will work to it. Sometimes I think I shouldn't be in a creative industry. I should be, I should be a lawyer or something like that, where someone's or where someone's or just in the army, where someone's told me what to do, and I will happily do it because I find that a beautiful feeling when someone's told you to do something and then you do it. I like it. You almost need to employ someone to be your boss as a comedian. Yes, yes, that's I'd a like good that. idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I need a comedian well. boss. Yeah, I'm just uh, briefly just pausing to think about the efficacy of that. I've thought that in the past, that if you could... You, a deadline is great, right? But yeah. you can't impose the deadline yourself because no. then it's not a deadline. I've heard of people who've got directors for shows where the director says, I want a full... I want that show fully typed out by February and sent to me. And then we start working on it. Who the fuck says that? I know who... It, I mean, uh, apparently... Okay. Uh, you know, Deck Monroe. Yes. Says that's like Sophie and Ian Smith. Yeah. Says, I want a full script. That may be, you know, that. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, a lot of what you hear on the circuit is absolute yeah. bullshit, stuff like that. But that could be. I true. mean, obviously, that's terrifying, but I think that sort of thing would work for That you. would work because yeah. then you actually have to get up and do it. Yeah. And then imagine that you've written your show in February. Yeah. It'd be good. Or like at least a good basis of it. So, this show that you're putting together now, any cauliflower material in it? No cauliflower material. That is a prime example of me mining, mining one topic. You got literally an hour out of your <laughs> anger at the idea that there could be cauliflower bases for pizza. Well, it wasn't. I mean, it was, there was a lot of cauliflower stuff. I couldn't believe how much you reincorporated cauliflower into that show. I enjoyed the show enormously, but I was like, wait a minute. Is this going where I I mean, think obviously, when you were there, it was terrible. But it, uh, <laughs> it, I think I'd written such a long routine on cauliflower pizza and sort of new health fads that it was weird that it was just sat in the middle of the show. Like, that I was talking about other stuff and then talking about that and then moving on. So I, I thought, well, I'm, I'm just going to have to split it and then just weave everything else into it and then keep claiming the show's not about cauliflower but keep going back to cauliflower, which made me laugh so much but really got on some reviewers... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> on some reviewers nads and are you able then we must wrap up are you able to continue to consistently fulfill this idea of getting yourself in a creative space by not giving a fuck what they think can like they being the audience yeah can you do that when reviewers are in i i'm not told when reviewers are in and i never wish to know when reviewers are in when reviews come out occasionally i will reckon i will recognize a reviewer so last year in edinburgh i was on the stage as the audience came in not when you saw it though i think because you saw it quite early and the stage was very high in the room and i felt so disconnected from them that i then decided i'll be on stage and in the room when they come in saying hello to everyone so at least they've seen me already and there won't be that thing of me standing towering above them on a high stage uh that turned out to be a mistake because then I would see people come in and on one occasion I did see a sneaky little reviewer. And did it fuck the show up for you? Yeah. But it was a difficult show anyway. And I think there's that initial thing of when you can, you can always tell in Edinburgh when it's going to be a sticky one, especially if you're quite deep into the run, you know how things should be going and 
how things fly if it's going to be a good show. And the first few jokes were just a bit sticky. And, that, and then what I would have normally done is gone, right, we're just going to step it up, really sell it, get in amongst it, we can bring this back. But all it did in my head was like, well, that, gu- that guy's there. <laughs> yeah. That guy's there. So he's already probably written down that the opening of the show is not very good. And then it's just, everything just falls apart after that. So we'll finish with this. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you, uh, people of the O2, for coming along. Um, so this has been an hour of me saying that I'm a shit comedian. I'm also all right. <laughs> I felt like I should jump in and uh, protect you there, but I also <laughs> thought that'd be a great place to give me an opportunity yeah. to end the show. <laughs> uh, which single bit are you most proud of? There's a bit that I keep coming back to, which I should have dropped by now, but I bring it out for difficult gigs because I still enjoy doing it. And it is a bit about me uh, going to have my nether regions looked at at the doctor's and it was a female doctor, and she tells me to, to pop it out. And then after that, I've got a big thing about saying, well, that's nice, because it suggests a, quite a small penis. It's better than me going in there and her saying, okay, just heave it out of your trousers. And then I've got about 10 tags of different things about me, like lassoing it and drag, getting a shire horse to drag it over. And that's just a joy to perform, especially when they're not on board. And I just I'm like got 11 to go. Like, you better strap in, guys. Because it ends up with like the seven dwarves carrying it on. And I get to refer to it as my meat. You know, it's. <laughs> this is uh, a perfect place to leave things. It's a very well written, very well explored, very articulate dick joke. Yes, Blue Whimsy. Blue Whimsy. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Ed Gamble. <laughs> So that was Ed. Thank you very much to him for coming along and being on the show. Thank you to Georgie Donnelly for sorting out the booking at the Stone Free Festival. Thanks to Rainbow. Um, and uh, thank you very much for listening and being part of it. You can donate, of course, at comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate or forward slash merch if you would like to feast your peepers on that wonderful new T-shirt. So that's that. I'm going to stick around for a little post-amble in just a second, but that officially Oh, no, it doesn't quite conclude the podcast. Let me just remind you, if you'd like to get in touch, at ComComPod, or indeed at Stu Goldsmith, my extremely well-produced and uh, content-heavy Twitter feeds, uh, or you can go to... You can email me at info at comedianscomedian.com, and if you want to be a cool guy and let me reply to you with a brief reply and know in your heart that I have actually bothered reading your email, you can put, P.S., I'm a cool guy. And people do that, and I'm very much appreciative of it. So that is that for now. I'll speak to you next week. Oh, who shall we have? We've got so many great ones. I've got like eight episodes in the can. They're great. Um, So we'll just have to see who we use. Speak to you soon. So this is, I mean, this is a frustrating one. I did a whole postamble. I did a good 12-minute postamble, and I sent all the files to hashtag thanks Daryl, and uh, they were deleted somehow. Not by him. I mean, I, they basically didn't send, and then I deleted them somehow. I just deleted them. And uh, and now I've got to redo them, and it's late, and I'm, I've got to get up in six hours, and it, I'm not in bed yet. So... Um, Uh, What was I going to chat to you about? I had a nice little thing about the wedding, the conclusion of the wedding. Everyone, not everyone, men with their tops off, 
several several large men with their tops off, myself included, uh, and uh, our friends Tom and Ben hoisted us aloft on their shoulders, and me and Mrs. Comcom, uh, had, she didn't have her top off. Uh, no girls do. I do feel sorry for girls, that <laughs> you are not able to participate in a right royal tops off without them sort of being some kind of agenda, or perce- perceptual or otherwise. Um, but uh, so we had a bit of LCD sound system at the, the crowning achievement of the, uh, the sort of wedding disco. And uh, she loves LCD sound system and I love taking my top off. So it was all it was really wonderful. Thank you to everyone that came. And thanks to all of you who sent me nice messages about it. Very much appreciate those. Hell Week has been great. It's been great, even when the show hasn't... I mean, there's only yeah, it's been small numbers, small but perfectly formed audiences. Difficult to really sense momentum in a room with small numbers, but I've just enjoyed every minute of the show. I said on Facebook this morning, you know that expression, kill your darlings, you know, you'll kill your babies, whatever it is, where you... What it means is any material to which you become sentimentally attached, even if you are... And it has to go. It has to go. Doesn't matter if you're attached to it. It goes. So that is... I got it was the morning of the long knives this morning. I got rid of so much stuff that I love and binned it. And the show is still overrunning. I'm not gloating here. The stuff that's in there is not completely ready yet. But um, it's very exciting to go, that bit's perfectly good. And I like it. I like doing it. And it's funny. And it's evocative. But it doesn't need to be in this show. I could pop that in my back pocket. So it, it feels... I suppose I had a meeting with uh, my friend Steve this morning, and I, we realised in the first ten minutes of the meeting, it was a little kind of writing chat, um, we realised what I needed from Steve was for him to tell me to hold my nerve, because I've got to a stage with this new show where I'm like, this is a bit different what I'm doing. I sort of spotted myself in the process. I spotted myself doing what I'd usually do to some material, and I thought, that's a bit boring. You've got a system... Why just adhere to the system? Why not try and actually maybe be a bit less all-encompassing? Maybe be slightly not divisive in terms of opinion, but you know what I mean? Why not Why not really pursue the stuff that is making you yourself, stew? Really laugh, and maybe that's at the expense of taking every single member of the audience with you. I mean, this will come as music to the ears of anyone who in the past has gone, come on push yourself i'm pushing myself but as a result i had a little a little moment with steve where i was like i, I mean I, there's still time to pull back right <laughs> i could just do what i normally do and and i'd be happy you know i like my work so maybe it would be fine to just do more of it but i i still i think it's a more interesting direction time will tell time will tell so um i'm off to bed now because it's late and i'm gonna get up very soon with the little guy and then we're gonna go to glastonbury festival so if you're at glastonbury come and say hi i bumped into my friend john earlier on today kind enough to come to hell week he is someone who has been watching me at glastonbury since before i was a comic he used to come and see me do street shows him and his family and uh, and now they come and then the last few years they've been coming to see me in the cabaret tent and uh, lovely john to see you at the uh, the hell week shows I'm very much looking forward to seeing all of the, the Glasto family, the extended family now, now that my family is bigger by a factor of a wife. And uh, I'm really excited to be there. I think this year is going to be the first one I'm going to where the plan is to go there and spend family time there, rather than the plan being to go there and run around with my head in my pants and hang out with a bunch of executive carnies. No, what I want to do this time is I can't, I'm really going to try so hard to do this. I'll report back next week on whether I managed it. I very much want to get up, like go to bed early, 
early by Glastonbury standards, midnight, having not drunk myself into oblivion, and then get up with the boy at six, pop him in the papoose, and go for a wander and go and look at some feckless dregs and uh, uh, and uh, point out the feckless dregs. I just want to kind of wander around the place. I think there must be a whole world to that festival, which I know, I feel like I know inside out. I've been so many times. It's where me and Mrs. Comcom met. And um, I'm really looking forward to seeing it afresh, wandering around it, checking out all the great stuff in the kids' field and and uh, and just enjoying it. The Boutros loves music. So I'm just... I, I really hope he loves it, and I really hope that we don't all evaporate in this sweltering heat. That'll do me for now. I'm rambling inconsequentially, more so than usual. Do I always say that? Ah, it's, it's conceivable. Um, thank you for listening, if you have. Um, thank you very much for your kind attention, and even in that final sentence, I'm continuing to ramble, which must mean it's time for bed. Good night, everyone, unless you're driving. Speak to you soon. Mm-hmm.